A lot of people have been working from home these last four to five weeks and working from home has its good points and its bad points. Among the good points, I can wear sweatpants and a t-shirt or shorts and a t-shirt and go to work every day like that. I say I'm saving money on gasoline and a well-stocked pantry is just down the hall. The bad points about working from home? Well, I'm losing track of my days. Every day seems like the one before it. And I miss being around people. I miss all of you. And the well-stocked pantry is just down the hall. There are solutions to the, to the well-stocked pantry. One would be to simply stop snacking all day long. And I tried that. It didn't work. Another solution, though, is exercise. My gym is closed, but uh, they have provided online exercise videos. And Mary and I have been doing them, and they're helpful, but there is a problem with those videos. It seems like every one of those videos is performed by someone in their 20s without an ounce of fat on them. The one I did the other day was led by a guy maybe we could call Igor. Um, I'm not sure, but I think Igor was trained in physical torture practices. I wonder if maybe he worked a short time for the Russian KGB. Igor looked like he actually enjoyed causing pain to other people. And his 30-minute video resulted in two days of pain for me. Uh, those videos, though, got me thinking. And, and I came up with three types of people when it comes to exercising. Now, before I tell you about those types, I, I do want to say this. Exercising doesn't mean that you have to go to the gym. Exercising doesn't mean that you have to be a bodybuilder or you have to run every day of the week. You don't have to be like Igor. Exercise can be as simple as going on a daily walk. Now, I also realize that some people have medical conditions that limit their ability to exercise, and I understand that. So, so that being said, here are the three types of people that we have when it comes to exercising. Uh, the first type of person totally rejects exercise. For them, a, a good workout is walking to the refrigerator to get a snack. And I have to admit, over these past few weeks, I've had days where that was pretty much the only exercise I got. The second type of exercise person, they do it for the end result. And that's usually my motivation for exercising. Since I love to eat so much, I work out. Working out allows me to snack. The workout is the price I pay for my eating habit. And then the third type of person exercises because they love to exercise. And I know what you're thinking. These people just aren't right. I would put my neighbor Dan in this third group. Dan is about a year and a half younger than me, but Dan has the strength, the stamina, and the body build of a guy about half his age. Dan works out practically every day. I think it makes him feel good. Dan and people like him understand the joy and the value of exercise. 
they exercise simply because they love to exercise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a pure joy to come to you in prayer. We know that you hear our prayers, that you love us, and that you are sovereign. We thank you that your son Jesus came to live as one of us, died for our sins, and rose again from the dead. In Jesus, we have a Savior who knows the pain and the joys of life. He was tempted just as we are tempted, but he never sinned. He accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to not change us. Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. And Father, we believe this, and yet there are times where we struggle with our belief. And so we ask that you would help us today in our belief, help us in our trust of Jesus. Turn our hearts toward Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are uh, continuing our journey through John's Gospel. We'll be in John chapter 4, verses 45 to 54. If you've got a, a Bible available, please open it up and join with us. If we were with us last week, you might remember we heard the end of the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. They were far from God. Because of the words that Jesus spoke, many in that Samaritan woman's village believed in Jesus. After leaving the Samaritans, Jesus headed back to his homeland. Jesus returned to Cana in Galilee where he performed his first sign, as John calls him, his first miracle. He turned water into wine. And Jesus would perform his second sign in the very same place. Now if you remember that first sign was performed at a, a wedding feast. Turning water into wine was a, a joyous occasion. The second sign, the second miracle, comes in a, a moment of pain and a, a moment of sorrow. One commentator points out that this shows us that Jesus has a place in all of our circumstances. He is there in times of joy to increase our joy. But Jesus is also with us in troubling times. And he'll bring comfort and peace. A peace that past surpasses all understanding. And so let's read from John chapter 4, verses 45 to 54. John writes this. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was near the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, 
Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when the son began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God. In this passage, Jesus was uh, approached by an official who had a dying son. John doesn't detail the actual uh, position of this official, but he likely served the Tetrarch of Galilee, who happened to be Herod Antipas. The official was more interested in what Jesus could do than he was really interested in Jesus himself. He knew of Jesus' miracle work. His son was dying. He was desperate. He begged Jesus to help his son. And we get it. We understand. With this pandemic still killing people, people are desperate for a cure. If your loved one is terribly sick, you will do whatever you can to help them recover. The official went to the right person. He went to Jesus. And his son was healed. As I read this passage and reflected on the previous verses from Pastor David's message last week, a, a couple of words stood out. And the first word that stood out was the word, word. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, he changed her life forever. She told the people of her town about, what Je about Jesus, and many of them believed in Jesus as a result. John 4.41 said, and many more believed because of Jesus' word. In verse 50 of today's passage, the official believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him. The Samaritans and the official believed because of Jesus' spoken word. The Samaritans believed without seeing Jesus perform a miracle. The official believed Jesus' word that he would save his son. Jesus would, said it would happen, and that was enough for the official. He didn't need to see the miracle before he believed. And then the second word that, that stands out in this passage comes from the response we see to Jesus' words. And that second word is believe. Richard Phillips states that there are three kinds of people in these last verses of John 4 when it comes to believing. And, and I think he's right. Um, these people represent three different types of belief. The first is disbelief. The second is something I call SC belief. And then the third is authentic belief. Let's start by taking a look at disbelief. In the last verse from last week's passage, we read, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home 
town. Many in Jesus' homeland didn't believe in him. They rejected Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus just beginning his ministry, and he was in his hometown of Nazareth where he read prophecy from Isaiah in the synagogue. And when Jesus finished, he declared that the prophecy had been fulfilled. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. And the people questioned, they said, isn't this Joseph, the, the carpenter's son? See, the people were both amazed at Jesus' words, and they also at the same time wondered, who does this guy think he is? He's just the son of a, of a carpenter. And ultimately, they drove Jesus out of town. They didn't believe. Some reject exercise. Some reject Jesus. Those who reject Jesus might be atheists. They don't believe in God, any God. Atheists often state that creation happened just by chance. They say that the Big Bang just happened. But I always, I always want to ask them a few questions. For one thing, who made all the stuff that went bang? And what caused it to go bang? And why did it go bang in just the right way? Believing there is no God takes more faith, a, a misguided faith, than it takes to believe that there is a God. Science can be a God. The only problem with that is God invented science and science supports a belief in God. Some atheists are intellectuals. They think that they're too smart, that they're too smart for God. They sure aren't as smart as God. When it comes to atheists, they can be tough to convince. But when God changes the heart of an atheist, they are a powerful witness. Their eyes are open, and they want to tell everyone about it. Others who reject Jesus belong to a different world religion. They have a, a different God, a God with a little g. Typically, their, their beliefs are based on works righteousness. You work your way to heaven. You work your way to a right relationship with God. But that doesn't work. God is perfect. Heaven is perfect. God demands perfection. And no matter how hard we work, we will never reach perfection. There's no way we can get to heaven on our own. And that's why Jesus came. He covers us with his righteousness. He covers us with his perfection. Through Christ, we are forgiven of all the wrong things we have done. We've been made right with God. Jesus paid the price to get us into heaven. When different wor world religion people meet Jesus, Jesus changes everything. They see the shortcomings of their own religion and they see the truth of Jesus Christ. And still others who reject Jesus have made up their, their own belief system. They make a religion that works for them. They make their own truths. But how can that be possible? Just because I want to believe something doesn't make it true. It can be challenging to defend the faith against people who make up their own religion. Because they don't believe in truth. 
And so we show them the truth and we pray that God will open their eyes to the truth, the only truth. People rejected Jesus when he walked among us. And many still don't believe in him today. The second type of belief is what I call SC belief. SC belief stands for Santa Claus belief. This belief states that if Jesus is like Santa Claus, if Jesus is like Santa Claus, I will believe. If God gives me what I want, I'll believe. You could call this a, a show me the miracle type of belief. It's not true faith in Jesus Christ. People with an SC belief turn their back on God when a loved one dies. They blame God. They say God is mean when they experience a natural disaster or a pandemic. Such people ask, how can a, a good God let such bad things happen? And that seems like a fair question. But it totally misses the point. People want to blame someone when something bad happens. And we don't like to take responsibility. And God seems a good place to assign blame. The point, the, the truth here, is that God is not responsible for disasters, suffering, and pandemics. We're responsible. We, the human race, brought sin into the world. We turned our back on God. We are fallen, sinful people. And sin has corrupted creation. Creation like us is fallen. And that means bad things happen. And that means that we don't have anybody else to blame but ourselves. And we don't like that. God is loving. God is gracious. God uses evil for good. The terrible COVID-19 pandemic has re resulted in increased Bible sales. My guess is that people are praying more today than they did perhaps four months ago. Many of us are praying for a revival in our land. Those who trust their life to Jesus will make it through this pandemic because Jesus is with them. They know that they have a glorious inheritance, heaven, that awaits for them at the end of this life. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. The Galileans in Cana had a Santa Claus belief. When Jesus came to Galilee, John wrote in verse 45, he said, The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They had witnessed or heard about Jesus turning water into wine. And so they welcomed Jesus, but they didn't believe in Jesus. Their faith was not true. They wanted a show. They, the miracle worker had come to town and they were curious. In the middle of this so-called welcome is when we meet the official whose son was dying. The official had likely heard of Jesus' water-to-wine miracle. The official needed a miracle for his son. He approached Jesus, asking Jesus to come and heal his son. As a government official, 
the man could have ordered Jesus to come. Instead, he came to Jesus in humility, asking, not demanding. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You read that and it sounds like Jesus was speaking directly to the official. It would be easy to conclude that Jesus was saying, you, you official of the Romans, you won't believe unless you witness a miracle. What isn't obvious to us is that in the original Greek, the you as in unless you see signs and the you unless you believe is in the plural. Jesus wasn't speaking directly to the official. He was referring to Galilean people in general. They were seeking a miracle. They would believe only if they saw a show. Contrast that with the Samaritan woman earlier in chapter 4. She and her village believed without seeing a miracle. The Samaritans believed because of Jesus' word. The Galileans were consumers. They're like me at the gym. You know, I work out because of the benefits. The only thing that keeps me exercising is being able to eat whatever I want. And if that's my motivation, my only motivation, I'm not going to keep it up. That's why gyms are packed in January because people have a lot of New Year's resolutions. And by March, gym attendance has dropped off drastically. You can't please consumers. And we belong to a consumer society. Churches have gotten caught in the trap of consumerism as well. Now, I speak from experience. We, church leaders, face pressure to put on a show. Pastors and other church leaders rely more heavily on technology with each passing day. Now, before I go further, I have to say something. Technology is a powerful tool. Without technology, you wouldn't be watching or listening to this message today. But technology can also be a trap. Technology can get in the way of the gospel. One pastor has suggested that too much attention to the digital, too much attention to technology, produces shallow, impatient, isolated people. Shallow impatient, isolated people. And technology isn't the only trap of consumerism. You know, I used to, to dream of being a rock star pastor like Tim Keller or Louis Giglio or Francis Chan. And, and my thinking kind of went like this. You know, if, if I could preach like, if I could be like Tim Keller, our church would grow. We would have a bigger building. More people would come to Christ. Over the years, though, I've learned that while guys like Tim Keller are great, God doesn't need me or our Pastor David to be like him or any other pastor. God can use pastors who sometimes tell jokes that aren't funny, who lose their place in a, a message, who mispronounce words, and who may at times look nervous and awkward. Pastors sometimes desire to be like the famous pastors because we believe that we have to sell ourselves. We have to compete. And our message is our product. 
And the competition part, to a degree, that's true. Churches compete against kids' sports and dance. We compete against Sunday morning golf. We compete against sleeping in. And sadly, at times, we feel like we even compete against other churches. When a new curl, cool church moves into the community, the other churches may get nervous. But we have to remember, it's not a competition. The show might get people into the door, but it doesn't keep them there. We don't want to produce shallow, impatient, isolated Christians. Instead, through relationships, we build community. We go deep in sharing our joys and concerns. We go slow and we grow in faith. We connect people to God and to each other. We live in faith together. We might not attract the consumers, but that's okay. We attract those who God calls. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who keeps people in church. The Galileans, they wanted a show. They missed the man. They missed Jesus, their Messiah. If they had opened their hearts and mind to Jesus, they would have realized that they didn't need miracles. Witnessing, the God, witnessing God in the flesh was more than enough. And the same is true today. When people meet Jesus, when they really get to know him, authentic faith happens. Authentic belief is the third type of belief we see in our passage. Jesus told the official, go, your son will live. John then wrote, the man believed the word Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. He believed. He had faith. He trusted. He didn't know 100% if his son had been healed. While traveling home, the official learned that his son was healed at the exact time Jesus said to him, your son will live. John then wrote in verse 53, and the official himself believed. We might wonder, didn't the man believe back in verse 50? Yeah, he did. But when the official learned that his son had been healed, his belief grew. He experienced the work of God in his life. It wasn't a show. It was Jesus' promise. And the official wasn't the only one to believe. John said his entire household believed. Authentic belief in Jesus Christ can happen in a moment. But it doesn't end there. Authentic belief is a decision. But it's also a commitment. It is abiding in Jesus. It is doing life with the Lord. Authentic belief is an emotional heart thing. We may experience amazing mountaintop moments. We see God at work in our lives and in the lives of others. And our faith grows. But authentic belief is also a, a head thing. It is reading the Bible, God's word. It is studying scripture with other people. It is listening to God's word preached. 
It is prayer, and our faith grows. When I started going to the gym, I was a SC, a Santa Claus type of exercise person. I exercise to get something in return. And yet the more I exercise, the more I exercise simply for the sake of exercise. It has value in itself. Authentic belief is trusting in Jesus because of who he is. He is God in the flesh. Authentic belief is understanding what Jesus has already done for you and for me. He saved us from the punishment we deserve for our sins and has given us heaven. Authentic belief is knowing that we don't deserve anything from God, and yet God gives us everything. Trusting our life to Jesus Christ is the most joy-filled, satisfying, wonderful, fulfilling, smartest, most important thing that you and I could ever do. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is our Savior. And we believe.